Cosy Consulting Podcast. You can find us online anytime at CosyConsultingLLC.com. And now, here's your host, Sarah Cosy. Hello, hello, and thanks for tuning in. In today's episode, I want to talk about people who jump the line and the amount of divisiveness that we see in America, the kind of vitriol and hatred that seems to exist over political parties, over who's an elephant and who's a donkey. From my perspective, it's bizarre because I feel like I've just left that entire narrative behind. It's not really of great interest to me. I feel like it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. And it just boggles my mind to watch neolibs attack neocons and vice versa, when it's like, you have way more in common (laughs) than you do not in common. One of you worships at the altar of the state and the other one worships at the altar of corporate America and Wall Street. But yet it all seems to me to be the same group of little piggies that eat from the same trough of slop. (laughs) Oh, I just, I find it maddening. But I recently read Arlie Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land. And I was inspired to read this because Arlie Hochschild is one of the commentators that you see in that documentary Essential that I talked about in a previous podcast episode. And they talk very briefly about her book, Strangers in Their Own Land. I think with her name in the documentary, she's credited as the author of this book. And it made me curious to read what this book was about particularly because in the documentary essential, and I'm paraphrasing here just for brevity. I don't want to have to go back and try to get the exact quote from from the documentary. So allow me some leeway here. But in the documentary, I'll drop a link to it again. If you didn't check it out the first time around, I would highly recommend that you do so. In the documentary essential, she talks about meeting with someone in Appalachia that was a coal miner and how this person believed that orange man was selling him a pack of lies. He knew that he was being bullshitted, but he went along with it because at least he felt seen. He felt like somebody on the political stage actually knew that he existed. So that made me even more curious to read this book. And the overall premise of the book is that Arlie Hochschild goes to Louisiana and she talks with people that are believers in the Tea Party movement. And to be honest with you, I had somewhat even dumped the existence uh, of that movement. I remember it. I seem to, in in the corners of my mind, going back to that point in time when it was popular, I seem to remember people like Rand Paul and Sarah Palin being politicians that people in the Tea Party liked. Maybe I'm misremembering that. I'm not sure. But I was like, oh, yeah, the Tea Party. I forgot about them. Now, the book is copyrighted from 2016, so that'll kind of give you an idea of the time period here that she's working from. So she goes to Louisiana. She meets with people that are of a completely different, she thinks, I guess, political ideology from hers. 
So here's this liberal sociologist coming from Berkeley, going and spending time with people in Louisiana. In that regard, I guess we could sort of characterize it as a typical Hollywood fish out of water story. The liberal granola eating hippie, nouveau hippie from Berkeley is going to Louisiana, going to the deep south to meet with people from the tea party and hijinks ensue. Except, as I'm sure you can probably imagine, when she gets down there, the people are hospitable. They're kind to her. They take her into their homes, into their places of business. They feed her, give her something to drink, and are perfectly fine human beings in the way that they treat her. Again, not surprising to me, anytime that I have traveled anywhere, I have never come back home without making a new friend. Something of an irony, I guess, for someone who's an introvert. And I'm not your introvert that goes around on an apology tour. I don't go around going, yeah, I'm an introvert, mealy-mouthing around. No, I am who I am. And not everybody is my cup of tea. I'm just not the kind of person that needs everyone else's approval in order to live my life. I don't worry about that. If you sit and worry about trying to have everybody else's approval, you're never going to accomplish anything. Because there's going to be a whole host of people out there that don't approve of you. And some of them actually do. They're just jealous. They see that you have some success or they think that you have some success. Or maybe they think you've done better than you ought to. You've risen above your station. And so they want to tear you down. I don't have time for that. I don't have time to sit and worry about that. I find that by and large, when you go out and you travel and you just sit down and meet new people, you will find something that you can talk about. You will find something that the two of you have in common more often than not. So it doesn't surprise me that Arlie gets to Louisiana and she meets with these various people that have seemingly different political ideologies from her own. And it's like, oh, well, these people were perfectly welcoming. We had different religious beliefs. We had different political beliefs, but they still brought me in and offered me a cup of tea and some peach pie. And it's like, well, yeah, no, duh. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't really think it's that surprising, I guess. But I am intrigued by this concept that she comes up with of people jumping the line. And I'm going to tie that in before I conclude this episode. I'm going to tie that into another book that I finished recently and why I think it's quite scary. When you have people that have bought into this mentality of somebody jumped the line, somebody is taking more than their fair share, somebody is cheating the system. Why does that become dangerous? I'll, I'll get there. So I want to talk about this. It's on page 136 of the hardback edition, which is the one that I got from the library. This idea of people who are waiting in line. And as she points out, people waiting in line, leading up a hill like they're on a pilgrimage. And we imagine this line to be people who are white, older, Christian, and predominantly male. Some who are college educated, some who aren't. And just over the hill is this idea of the American dream and that everyone is waiting in line. Everyone is taking their fair amount of allotted time. No pushing, no shoving. We're just going to stand in an orderly queue. And the American dream is posited as a dream of progress. You're going to get better off than previous generations. I'm thinking again of Allentown 
Every child had a pretty good shot to get at least as far as their old man got. This idea that you're going to be able to get a little farther than your parents, and then your children will get farther than you, and then your grandchildren will get farther than them. And so within your lifetime of, let's say, anywhere from 70 to 100 years, you're going to get to see all of this progress, not only for you, but for your kids and for your grandkids. And this will be a pleasant experience. You, you can die feeling fulfilled. But then as you're standing in this line, you start to wonder, is the line moving? Is it at a standstill? Are there enough jobs to go around? Is there enough money to go around? Will I get a raise? Will I get a promotion? Will I really be able to achieve this American dream? Will I have to wait in this line forever? So in her analogy, the sun is hot. The line doesn't seem to be moving. In fact, maybe you start to wonder if it's moving backwards. You wonder if you should have gotten that college degree or if you didn't get a college degree, you start to wonder if you would have been better off had you gone to college and gotten that degree. But you try to take this bad news in stride. You try to not worry so much about your worrying and just think, well, we're all in this line together. We're in it together. You have these elements of your personality or elements of your character that you feel like you can be proud of. Whether that's morality, so-called clean living, monogamy, not filing for a divorce, staying loyal to a particular company or to a particular job, always saluting the flag, believing in God, etc. Oh, but then, but then, you have to deal with the line cutters. You feel that no wonder the line is not only moving, it actually seems to be going backwards because you're getting pushed back in the line by these supposed people who are jumping the line. They're getting ahead of you. You and your family are following the rules, whereas they're not. They're getting ahead through affirmative action, through programs from the federal government, by preferential treatment. They're getting things like preference for college and universities, apprenticeships, jobs, welfare payments, and free lunches. They're people like women, immigrants, refugees, public sector workers, people of color. <gasps> They're jumping the line. And then she asks about President Obama. How did he rise so high? He's the biracial son of a low-income single mother, and now he's the president? Well, how did he get there fairly? Maybe he jumped the line. Then on top of that, you have the EPA telling you about environmental hazards and environmental concerns. So now you have women, people of color, immigrants, refugees, and brown pelicans all cutting ahead of you in the line. Everybody appears to be more important in this line and seems to have a better shot at getting to that American dream than you do. So you feel betrayed. You become suspicious. You feel like progress has become harder. Is there really a chance to get to that American dream after all? Maybe you get catcalled. She mentions terms like crazy redneck, white trash, ignorant southern Bible thumper. And then you realize it's you that they're talking about. You feel offended. You turn on the television and you see that you're being parodied as a moronic white trasher. You feel like a stranger in your own land. 
and you do not recognize yourself and how others see you. I've made it now to page 144. So in this book, and to some degree in the documentary Essential, not only Arlie, but then also when we're talking about Essential, we're talking about the other commentators that were profiled in that documentary. You start talking about how that dissatisfaction, the economic disparities, the income inequality, and then also the labeling of these workers are essential, these workers are non-essential. These workers are given laptops and they're sent home. These workers have to put on face shields and biohazard suits and stay in the workforce. But then when we're told that <clears throat> is over with and we're not going to do the pandemic anymore, the essential workers who were so labeled during the pandemic that had to put on beekeeper costumes and be out in public and take their chances, well, now they're not essential anymore. We're going to like scoot them to the side and treat them as second class citizens. And we're going to tell the people that were sent home with laptops, yeah, it was okay for you to work from home then because, like, that's what we told you you could do. But now we're going to tell you that you need to come on back. We're going to tell you that remote work has a shelf life, and now it's time for you to come back to the office. And we kind of, like, don't give a damn if you don't have child care, elder care, pet care. We don't care. If you move far away from the office, we don't care if you believed our corporate bullshit lies. We want you to come on back and we're going to give you a 30 or 60 or maybe 90 day period to make your arrangements or to come to your conclusions. And then we want everybody back in the cube farm, but see now the CEO, he can still because it's usually he, let's be honest, he can still go out and play golf. He has his own private bathroom. He doesn't even have to co-mingle with you peons at the urinal. He can come and go as he pleases. But you, you're going to have to sit here in the cube farm and obey because that's what we're telling you to do. How is this a fair situation for anybody? How is it fair for the people that were deemed essential during the pandemic, but then are now being shunted to the back of the line? And then how is it fair for people that were told they were non-essential, but they had to take a laptop, go home, work anyway? Oh, but now remote work has a shelf life, so you need to come on back. To me, it feels crystal clear that this type of behavior benefits the hyper elites and the fat cats. It doesn't benefit John and Jane Q public. And it also feels quite clear to me that this is part of how the haves divide the have nots. Because if they can get you thinking about these things, the very things that Arlie is talking about in this book, oh, these other people are jumping the line. It's people of color, it's women, it's poor people, it's refugees, it's immigrants, now it's brown pelicans. If they can get you divided on these issues, then you're too busy infighting with each other. They get to stay monolithic, but then the peons and the plebs are supposed to have all of this infighting so that nobody ever sits down and has these conversations, these exact type of conversations, like what Arlie has with the people in Louisiana. I suspicion that the more that we had those conversations, the more we would realize, hey, look, I've got problems and so do you. I'm stressed out about medical debt and I'd love to do more animal rescue and rehabilitation, but damn it, I can't. The economy's not letting me do it. The housing market's not letting me do it. And I feel trapped. I suspicion there would be other people who would say the same things. The more that we are able to talk to one another and have a spirit of unity, 
the less that benefits the fat cats. And boy, don't they know that, which is why they have to stir the shit pot and try to make sure that people hate each other over stupid reasons. Are you an elephant or are you a donkey? Oh, well, whatever you say, if I don't like it, then I'll just completely exile you from my life. Are you a fan of the senile old man or are you a fan of the orange man? And then whatever you say, if I don't like it, I'll exile you from my life. That's really intense. Just completely cutting people off at the knees over politics? That feels very intense to me. It does. And calling people Nazis who are not actual Nazis, calling people communists or Maoists who are not actual communists or Maoists, that also feels very scary to me. And I feel like it, it lessens the impact of that. Running around calling every politician Hitler detracts from the actual Hitler. Calling every politician Mussolini or Chairman Mao, that detracts from the sins of the actual people like Hitler and Mussolini and Mao. It's very divisive, incendiary rhetoric, yet we hear it so damn much that it doesn't even hit our ear in that way anymore. It just gets bandied about. So then people become desensitized to it, and that is a very scary thing to me. As a minority, as somebody who most certainly does not reflect Hitler's idea of Aryan perfection, it scares the shit out of me. We need to quit flippantly throwing these terms out and being exaggerative because we don't want to diminish and take away from the atrocities that have happened. Just because the guy down the road from you is of a different political party, has a different set of beliefs, doesn't make him Chairman Mao or Hitler. We need to get away from that kind of hyperbolic language. It's absurd. So as I was reading Arlie Hochschild's book and contemplating this concept of people jumping the line, certain people thinking that others had jumped the line, they had gotten somewhere unfairly, they were taking too much. There's not going to be enough left of the American dream because these other people over here see the separation between the self and the other. These other people over here are taking too much of it. By the time I finally get up there, if I do ever get up there, there's not going to be anything left. That reminded me of something I read recently in Edwin Black's book, IBM and the Holocaust. I've been reading that book for a while. It was slow going. I finally finished it, but wow, just wow. It's very well researched, incredibly well documented. It's, it's dense with information. But it's the kind of book where... I would have to read a chapter, maybe two at a time, and then just set it down and walk away. The information that he talks about in this book is awful. It's awful for so many reasons. And I'm not going to repeat some of the stories that he tells of things that were done in the camps or trophies that were made from the victims. I won't do that. You don't need, you don't, you don't, I'm not, I'm not even gonna, you do need to know it. You absolutely do need to know it. I'm just not going to go into it here. But I want to talk about chapter three, which is titled Identifying the Jews. There's a, a passage that I read. 
And I thought about this particular passage when I was reading Arlie Hochschild's book, this idea of someone cut the line. Someone jumped ahead. Someone got more than their fair share. I immediately thought back to this passage in Edwin Black's book. I'll read for you now. They were singing to their leader, arms locked, swaying in song, male voices rising in adulation and expectation. They crooned their praises with worshipful enthusiasm, clicking beer steins in self-congratulation, reassured by their vision of things to come, stormtroopers everywhere sang the horsed vessel song, as a Nazi testament and a prophecy both. And then he gives us a verse here. This is the final bugle call to arms. Already we are set, prepared to fight. Soon Hitler's flags will wave over every single street. Enslavement ends when soon we set things right. Whether in beer halls, sports fields, or just swaggering down the streets, brown shirts throughout the Third Reich joyously chanted their most popular anthem, with good reason. For the Sturm. Abteilung, S.A., or Stormtroopers, the ascent of Adolf Hitler was deliverance from the destitution and disconsolation of lives long disenfranchised by personal circumstance or character. But they needed a scapegoat. They blamed the Jews for everything. Jews had conspired to create the Depression, to enslave the German race, to control society, and to pollute Aryan blood. And now the followers of Hitler would exact their bizarre brand of justice and revenge. More precisely, the Nazis planned to uproot the alien Jews from their prized positions within German commerce and culture. The angry young men of the SA, many of them dregs within German society, believed they would soon step into all the economic and professional positions held by their Jewish neighbors. Through unending racial statutes ousting Jews from professional and commercial life, Relentless purges and persecution, unyielding programs of asset confiscation, systematic imprisonment, and outright expulsion, the SA would usurp the Jewish niche. Nazis would assume Jewish jobs, expropriate Jewish companies, seize Jewish property, and in all other ways ban Jews from every visible facet of society. Once the Nazis finished with the Jews of Germany, they would extend their race war first to the greater Reich in Europe they envisioned, and ultimately to the entire continent, end quote. So let's think about that. These people felt like they had destitution and disconsolation, and they needed a scapegoat. They didn't want to blame themselves. They wanted a scapegoat. They felt like they would soon step into all the economic and professional positions held by these others. Again, we're talking about the separation of the self and the others. My group is different from your group. Your group cut the line. You're holding these things that I feel like my group ought to have. And so we need to take those things from you. So for me, reading Arlie's book, and contemplating this idea of someone cut the line. Someone took more than their fair share. These other people who are separate from me are stealing my piece of the American dream, damn it. That kind of thinking is absolutely fertile ground for dictators, for demagogues, for Nazi-type ideology. We are superior to them. First of all, in order to even get there, you have to create a sense of separation 
you have to create that us versus them mentality. And don't you think the fat cats are doing that to us now? By making the have-nots fight each other and have so much vitriol and venom about politics, of all freaking things. Calling everybody you don't like Hitler, calling everybody you don't like Stalin, calling everybody you don't like Chairman Mao, saying, if you're from a different political party, I wouldn't even date you, I wouldn't even be your friend, I'd kick you out of my family. That kind of divisiveness and this idea of someone else, some other group that's foreign to me, well, they cut the line. Folks, that's a dangerous, dangerous state of affairs. All it takes is somebody like a Hitler to come into power, to make promises. Here's something else that Edwin Black covers in his book. Slightly off topic, so I'm not going to get too far into it. But one of the things that he talks about is how Hitler is very clear in Mein Kampf about what he intended to do. And yet you still had people that acted like it was some surprise, like they just couldn't believe that he actually went through with it. It's like, well, he told you what his plan was. Good grief. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I don't have some tidy answer for you, some clean, tidy, neat answer about how we should unify the country again, how we get past all of this vitriol. I do think that what Arlie talks about in the book of trying to scale the empathy wall, trying to see things through another person's eyes and, and talking to them, get out of your comfort zone, get out of the echo chamber, just go talk to somebody, sit down and have a conversation with somebody that maybe is not the typical person that you would talk to. Learn about their life, learn about their problems. What are they afraid of? What are they struggling with? What are their joys? What are their fears? The more that we do that, the more I think we can overcome, at least in some small way, this idea that we're all supposed to be divided. We're all supposed to bicker with one another. Making predictions about the job market is one thing, but it really is very, very terrifying to think about this level of division and this idea of someone jumping the line escalating to a point where we could have that kind of dictator, that kind of demagogue, that kind of genocide happen again. It is a very scary thought. The next time that you are getting into that echo chamber, the next time that you find yourself listening to some idiotic mainstream media narrative some clear neocon versus neolib drivel. Can you question that? Can you step back from that narrative and just say, wait a minute, who is benefiting from this? If I get mad at somebody because he's a donkey and I'm an elephant or vice versa, who actually is benefiting from that? Because it's, it's not John and Jane Q public. It's not working class or working poor people who benefit from that. Stay safe. Stay sane, and I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a quick second to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.